Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian. For the birds to engineer their own habitat, it creates basically the habitat which is locally adapted to local conditions so it's using local provenance seeds we don't have to worry about any disease being brought in here because it's all local seeds we don't have to worry about whether it's used to the soil type because it's on the same soils as the parent trees that's richard broughton and he's showing me around a very special habitat it's an overcast day in a heavily farmed area of the country but we're standing in a diverse woodland and we'll be exploring it in just a moment This is part two of the Age of Extinction takeover of Science Weekly, all about trees. I'm Phoebe Weston. And I'm Patrick Greenfield. In the last episode, I explored how tree planting isn't an easy fix. Now I'm handing over the reins to Phoebe. In this episode, I'm following people who are working hard to get trees in the ground. And there's no straight answer to how you should create new forests. So I'm going to take you through three projects, starting in this young woodland just north of Cambridge. Oh, what's flying overhead? Are they goldfinches? Yeah, it's goldfinches and they'll be coming in for the knapweed. They love the knapweed seeds. I'm walking through Monk's Wood with Richard Broughton. He's an ecologist at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. This woodland is a test site where the birds we hear are key to the plants we see around us. It's really uplifting to be here in the spring when it's just really noisy with birdsong, surrounded by it, lots of blossom around. It smells nice too, you know, with all the blossom. And then you can come and pick rambles in the autumn. It's my fieldwork snack, actually. I do tend to gorge on the brambles as I'm walking through. (laughs) (laughs) From brambles to knapweed to ladies' bed straw, this site has a healthy diversity of plant life. And behind me is an ancient woodland with a canopy which is around 20 metres high. And around me is a younger forest. A few saplings come just up to my knees. A couple are around by my head. And then there are others which are already several metres high. And it's just 25 years in the making. This forest wasn't planted by Richard or any human. Most of it was planted 
by birds. Yeah, so this is hawthorn and this one there is blackthorn. So it's dominated by hawthorn really. And these are dropped by thrushes. So when it's open grassland, the thrushes are the first ones to come in here foraging and they're feeding in the hedgerows around and they're dropping these, uh, the, the seeds from the berries in their droppings. And that's what's creating this initial thicket. Dotted amongst them now, there's oak trees here, oak tree, ash tree, ash tree, oak trees popping up. When you get your eye and you can see the tree canopies just starting to emerge, yeah. just starting to poke up and they're everywhere. Can you tell us how, how the jays move acorns around? Because they don't digest them, do they? They drop them and want to come back to them later and then forget about them. Yeah, they're a huge seed predator. They find an oak tree which is producing lots of acorns and groups of them will just hoover up the acorns that can carry multiple acorns in their throat, in their mouth. So they can carry maybe sort of five or ten or something at a time. And then they'll plant those in a cache. So they're, they're scatter hoarders. They'll fly a few hundred metres to an open ground area and then they'll bury them in the ground and then they'll plan to come back for them. But not all of them survive. Not all of the jays survive and um, they don't remember where they've put them all either. So eventually you get these little clusters of oaks appearing everywhere. The jays have planted around half the trees around us the shrubs were planted by thrushes and the rest of the trees are common ash and field maple blown in by the wind. He knows this because... Only jays do that. Possibly a little bit from grey squirrels, but oaks and jays are almost symbiotic. The oaks relies on the jays to plant their seeds and then the jays rely on the oaks to provide the food. So it's this well-established ecological relationship between them. And the oaks' acorns, are, they're too big to blow on the wind, so they can only be carried by the jays. And we see them doing it. It's a bird-engineered habitat. It's the thrushes and the jays are engineering their own habitat. I was absolutely astonished when I first read the research about this wood. And it may sound remarkable, but before us humans, this is how all woods were planted, by animals and natural processes spreading seeds. So is nature better at planting trees than we are? I asked Richard... Ooh, better is a controversial term. That's a, that's a curveball. <laughs> Thank you for that one. Uh, it's not better, it's just different. It has a different outcome. So if you look around you, this doesn't look like a plantation. It's not regular. It's also a multiple age. So you can see here we have a young oak tree there, probably about five years old, and there's one probably about 20 years old. And this one, the taller one's already producing its own acorns as well. So it's already self-propelling uh, its own regeneration. The other thing is that it's probably more resilient because if these are planted themselves that by seed they're sending down a taproot straight down so they're not pot grown so they're not pot bound they've got a large root system and probably all of the um all of the uh, fungi and stuff are associated with their roots too so the these um this patch of woodland here has been through several droughts several really severe droughts and there isn't any die off of the oak trees but the oak trees are really resilient and also all the other shrubs there's no yellowing in it it's very green it's very luxuriant and it's patchy as well so we have a mosaic of different types of habitat this mosaic is great news for a diverse set of wildlife. There's loads of different ecological niches in this woodland for animals to fill. So birds, frogs, snakes, lizards and loads of pollinators all live here, reliant on that diverse base of plants. On the other side of the ancient woodland is a 60-year-old site with large, mature trees, and it's the result of planned abandonment. It was a really forward-thinking project in the 1960s, before the term rewilding existed. A researcher wanted to see what would happen if he left a farmed field alone. 
the director at the time, uh, Kenneth Mellenby, he thought it would be a good idea just to watch what happens if we did nothing to it and to see if the woodland would reclaim it. And if it did, would it be the same as the ancient woodland? How long would it take? What species would be in there? And this is for a field which was originally cleared around the Roman period. So it had been farmed for a couple of thousand years until it was abandoned. So the ancient woodland is key because the jays will only fly with seeds for so long. So if you want to naturally regenerate a forest, you do need existing trees nearby. And Richard says that this experiment shows we could increase English woodlands simply by leaving the fields next to them alone for a couple of decades, and the woodland would just naturally spread out into them. Thanks so much, Richard, for showing me around. This has been amazing. Well, thanks for coming. It's been great showing you. What works in one area of the world may not work in another, and that's why for my next example, I had a look at Restore, the platform that we were speaking about in the last episode. It highlights the work done on the island of Borneo in Indonesia. The organisation, Panduolam Lestari, is restoring a forest out there, and they sent me a video of the location. And we can see tall trees towering over the workers. According to a document from the team, a large area of the forest was burned clear, and now they're trying to get part of that area back, but not by planting only the original species. They're planting fruit trees for harvest and vegetables as well, a process called agroforestry. A group of indigenous people called the Dayak live in the forest and need it for food and income. Yuda Puira is one of the people leading this project. This is good income for them. We're planting to, to plan for the short time, middle time, and the long time. They can get money every two weeks, every month, every day. The new trees will provide people with wood and food. And trees will likely make the soil more rich. And that means the vegetables will grow better as well. And they'll have cows and goats walk on the areas to naturally fertilise it with their manure. The trees will hopefully also prevent flooding, which has happened since the forest was stripped. But the most important thing to Yuda is that the forest remains a resource for locals who need it most. We come back to the natural condition from our culture because before that we enjoy, we relax, we happy because mm. everything inside in the forest. We can live only in the forest. We can take the food, trees, medicine. And that brings me to my last example of tree planting. In the last episode, we mentioned that the city of Glasgow made a big announcement ahead of the COP26 climate conference. It will plant 18 million trees, and that's 10 for each resident. To find out how they plan to get millions of trees into the ground, I called Max Hislop. He's the director of the Clyde Climate Forest. The Clyde Climate Forest is a 10-year project which was launched on June the 1st this year. It's about expanding tree and woodland planting across the Glasgow city region as a response to the climate emergency. And how are you working out what trees should be going where and how you should be planting them? Well, I guess we're using every forester's epithet, which is uh, you need to be planting the right trees in the right places, but also we need to be planting them for the right reasons. So the kinds of trees that we will be planting or will be facilitating planting will be 
varied. In urban areas, we will be planting lots of broadleaf trees. Some of them will be native, others will be non-native trees, which are suited to the hostile conditions you can find in urban areas. Where we're planting trees to connect up existing woodland habitats, there are going to be native woodland species that we'll be planting there. And where we're needing to expand new forests as a timber resource, then they're likely to include some exotic species as well. Okay, and presumably the challenges of planting trees in urban areas is very different from planting them in rural areas. Could you talk a little bit more about how you actually go about doing that in the two instances? So in urban areas, it is much more challenging to get trees to grow because of the kind of conditions that urban trees have to uh, cope with. So often the land that trees is planted into is contaminated, particularly in a city like Glasgow, which has a large post-industrial landscape. So we have to think about what the soil conditions are for the trees. Often the soil is very limited, and if you're planting street trees, the area of soil that trees can grow within is often quite small. So we have to think about accommodating trees in quite tight situations. And then just the sheer virtue of the urban environment, you know, having lots of heat reflected off of buildings and and dry conditions can be very challenging for trees. So choosing the right trees for the right place in urban areas is all important. Mm. And part of the aim is to connect up habitats as well as and connect up existing forests. Could you tell us a bit more about why that's so important? Yes, so we're looking to create a migratory corridor, if you like, from the southern part of our region and the southern uplands of Scotland through our region and into the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park, which lies to the north of our region. And this is important because as the climate changes, species are having to generally move in a northerly direction to find the conditions that suit them. And we're already seeing that because we're seeing new species coming in from Europe, the continent of Europe, into the south of England. And that process is happening right across the the British Isles as well. So species are generally already uh, migrating north. And we have to find or provide, if you like, these migratory corridors to allow species to do that kind of northerly migration, if you like. And if we don't do that, then, of course, there's a real danger that those species will suffer and perish. So that's all important when we think about the twin challenges of both the climate emergency and ecological extinction. Max says the team will use different approaches to get the trees in the ground. Sometimes this will mean natural regeneration like we saw earlier in Monk's Wood and some will be human planted. Either way, the end goal is the same. We need to make sure that the trees grow well. Planting a sapling in itself doesn't lock up carbon. That sapling has to grow into a tree before it's locking up carbon. And the faster it grows and the longer it lives the more carbon it's keeping out of the atmosphere. So the important thing here is to have good silvicultural practice. Silviculture is the science of growing trees. And, you know, there's a lot of knowledge about growing trees and the right ways of of going about that. And what we need to ensure is that we apply that knowledge uh, in as many situations as we can. So basically, if you're looking at a tree and it looks healthy and is growing well, it's likely to be sucking up a lot of carbon, whereas a shriveled smaller tree which isn't growing so well just isn't going to be absorbing as much carbon absolutely phoebe reforesting on an enormous scale seems possible but it is going to be complicated we've got to be honest with ourselves about its limitations 
And most importantly, we have to cut fossil fuel consumption. I think there's something really cool and simple about the mantra of planting trees. And very few people can object to it, as Patrick, you spoke about in episode one. And that's great because it makes people feel motivated and it feels like something we can all help out with. And what I've learned from this podcast is that planting trees is deceptively complicated. The devil's in the detail. And there are many ways of doing it, like, for example, we heard from Richard in Monk's Wood and also from Yuda doing agroforestry in Borneo. Essentially, planting trees is much more than just planting a tree because they're not just a store of carbon. They provide livelihoods, protect our soils and provide a home for loads of wildlife. Trees are part of a broader system and we need to be mindful of that when we think about what should go where. You've been listening to the Age of Extinction Takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. This episode was produced by Tiffany Cassidy. The executive producers were Max Sanderson and Nicole Jackson. And the commissioning editor for Age of Extinction is Max Bonato. The Age of Extinction project is supported by the Band Foundation, the Wiss Foundation and the Oak Foundation. If you want to find out more about this content, head over to the podcast page at theguardian.com. As always... Send us any of your thoughts on the episode or ideas for the future. We love getting your emails. Reach out to us at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. See you next time. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. 